0: This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Let's have a prayer. Our Father in Heaven, what a wonderful privilege it is still to this day, 2,000 years later, to still talk about the righteousness of Christ. Lord, help us now move a little bit deeper into the waters. With your spirit and your presence, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in order for me to stay out of the ditches of righteousness by faith, and you notice I never introduce it as righteousness by faith, but this is what it is. I mean, the gospel is righteousness by faith. But when you moment, you say, I'm going to be talking about righteousness by faith, you get into all the ditches. So to avoid that, when I put this together, I use steps to Christ as my boundaries, Because in 1892, when this was written, she pulled it from different works and because of all the controversies over it. And she said, these are the pillars right here. So she wrote this to keep us balanced and to get out of the the different issues that the truth gets lost in. So I'm following this precisely. Even the lectures that I won't cover here, I'm still going right down through these chapters. So I'm going into chapter 2 next. And... uh, If you're sneaking ahead of me, you kind of know where I'm going. But we need to move. Here's the problem with righteousness by faith. Intellectually, theologically, and academically, scholastically, grammatically, (laughs) linguistically, all these ways we can say, what I just said is true. That is a Protestant, Calvin, Luther, spirit of prophecy, Adventist understanding of the gospel. You won't find anything else. But we've got to get it from the head, right? From thinking, okay, in the judgment, I'm going to cry out for His righteousness. There has to be a heartfelt response to that. There has to be a crying, like Paul said in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, that crying out to be covered because you know your righteousness is not right. There is a heartfelt thing that has to be happening here that causes you to want that righteousness, Otherwise, if it's just intellectually in my head, because I can pass the test, because now I know how to define Lagoziomai, Zeomai, uh, right? If we don't move, make that move into, from in here, I know, I see his righteousness. And it moves my heart. I, I cry for that covering. Unless that happens, then we're not really going to be covered so Steps to Christ, chapter 2, is for that purpose. Because it's only when I need and want that righteousness will I be able to receive the credential of it, which gives me that sanctified experience we're all trying to get to. So chapter 2 of Steps to Christ takes us right there. And I'm going to get right into the topic. Right? There's a reason why she calls it, after she talks about Calvary and the cross and the great love of God, there's a reason why... Chapter 2 is entitled, The Sinner's Need. The the chapter is designed to open our heart to some uncomfortable realities and truths. And Paul does the same thing in Romans. Right after he's talking about the cross, he's talking about God's love, he goes straight into the sinner's need. The truth about what we are. That as we begin to wrestle with that, it begins to open the heart. And then all of a sudden, that righteousness that we're looking at, that we're seeing, we start realizing how much I really do need it. And if you go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, 16, and 17, you know you've got all those negative condemnations against us. We know almost by heart, don't we? The bad adjectives. Miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. But right there in Revelation 3, 17 is chapter 2's title. Do you know what it is? What What is like the big thing that God says against... Laodicea. He calls them this, but He says, this is your problem. Hmm? Right. Verse 17. we got to read it. What is there? Look at 17. It's what steps to Christ chapter 2 is based on. Romans chapter 2. They have no what? They have no need. Because you say you have no need... And we, we feel like that just go right over my head. But the entire chapter of Steps to Christ is based on it. Romans 2 and 3 and 4 are based on it. And God at the end of time says, hey, this is the huge problem. They don't know they have a need. So, so Paul is going to bring us back. And, and the Gospels, and actually all the Old Testament, the prophets were always trying to get the people to confess this and to understand that. And in today's society, we have an enlightened Adventist body that are on the road to spiritual heights and we are growing and we are becoming. I mean, look, we are a church that teaches a good message on sanctification. No problem. But when we can get too caught up in sanctification. And that can become a problem because then we can start to feeling above our raisin. So I'm going to start with this quote from a book called Heavenly Places. Listen to this. Only by the light shining from the cross of Calvary can we know to what depths of sin and degradation the human race has fallen through sin. Only by the length of the chain let down from heaven to draw us up again can we know the depths to which we have sunk. And it is only by keeping the unseen realities in view that we can understand anything of the wonderful theme of redemption. If we could compare in another place, she says this, if we could compare ourselves to Adam in his purity, the race would be unrecognizable today. And that was in 1840s. And when you think about this statement, it is powerful. What kind of condition did mankind find themselves in that would cause Christ to become a child, to become a seed, to become a man, to become a human to save us? And even more condemning is the fact that it doesn't bother me no more. The fact that when I hear the story of Calvary, when I hear the cross, when I read Desire of Ages, I read it, it's like I'm reading a book of literature and it doesn't touch my heart. There's something wrong when I don't weep over Calvary no more. There's something wrong. And what is wrong is what chapter 2 is all about. And it's something that we've got to get to if we can confess and admit and understand. Man, now we're on our road to taking the third step. It's a great biblical truth that we're messed up from the floor up. And oh Job understood that, right? One of the great men of the Bible, the oldest piece of written literature that we have is Job chapter 14. And in verse 4, when God comes down and confronts him after his complaining, he says in verse 4 of chapter 14, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Because I I get it, Lord. I'm nothing. In Romans 7, verse 18, that great dictum of Paul. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet. For 1,500 years, he had studied the history of his people. All the beautiful things that God did, delivered them magnificently. Manna, thunder from the mountain, his own voice, the plagues, the fire at night and the cloud during the day and his voice. And yet 1,500 years, Jeremiah weeps. Because his people, even in the light of God's own presence, still can't get it right. And he says, for the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's how he sums it up. Isaiah, the great gospel prophet, when he was confronted with an image of God, who is more righteous than Isaiah? And this is what he said of himself. Then said, I woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. He took one look at the glory of God and said, oh, shh, I can't go there. Daniel chapter nine. Who could be more righteous than Daniel? Who could be more perfect in his character and being than Daniel? In that great prayer of chapter nine, right before God reveals to him the 2300 year vision. Daniel says this. Oh, Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us. Shame of face to us including me, Daniel, shame of face, is all that I can stand in your presence. You alone belongs righteousness. In Revelation three seventeen, we read it. That is the condition of mankind, even the very best of us. And yet, at nearly every session at Newstart, at least every other session at Newstart, when I do this lecture, someone will come to me. I had a lady came to me the first time. I, I Probably the second time I gave this lecture, this woman came to me and she said, you know, you were doing pretty good until now. She says, you made me feel like a dirty, rotten sinner. And I went, <laughs> I didn't say it, but I was thinking, well, you are. <laughs> and then she gave me this litany of things. And I under, I, I'm feeling her. I know what she's trying to say. And she's giving me this litany of things that she does. And she was raised in the church. And, and she goes, I'm a pretty good person. I, I don't feel what you feel. And I'm thinking, that's the problem. You really are not in touch with what we are, even in a very ontological reality of myself. Not just, you know, my life that you see, but the very reality of humanity, of what we are in the eyes of God. Job had it right. When he wrote this in Job chapter 9, listen, it's one of these strange things that he says, but he's really honest about it. You know, this is where he's... He's really in his agony. Job chapter 9, verse 20. I love this. He says, though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. And then he says this, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. You know what he's saying? Like, Like, hey, I am a righteous guy. I am doing good things. I haven't sinned against no one, but I'm not a good guy. I mean, that's what Job is saying. Like, I'm a good guy. I'm a preacher. I'm always praying. I'm always studying my Bible. I I mean, I'm constantly praying for someone, giving counseling to someone. I'm out there preaching. i preached 70 times in the last three months. Seventy. I mean, I'm constantly, but I'm not a good guy. I understand what the Scripture is trying to tell me because I've experienced in my own life. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to get people to believe from the beginning the truth. Because until you understand the truth, until you see yourself in your truest light, you can never see God in His true light. As long as we think that we're pretty good people, we will never see what God has really done for us. And so Paul is trying to rip away that charade right off in Romans chapter nine, 1. And he's talking about the dirty, rotten sinners, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks, and he's just completely lambasting them in these chapters chapter 1 verse 19 and or 29 through 31 listen to what he says it's pretty cruel he says, oh, they're filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, unsworthworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. I mean, God. and all the Jews listening to this was like, mm-hmm, they ain't no good, none of them. And so Paul, man, in chapter 2, then he's continuing the conversation. and He says, oh, yeah, listen to this. He says, you indeed are called a Jew and you rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth. In the law, he's saying, you are not dirty, rotten sinners, right? Those Greeks and Romans, they're terrible. They're, they're the homeless. They're down on Montrose and Westheimer. They're under the bridges down there in the fifth ward. But you, man, you are good people. And then he says in chapter three, verse nine, he says, let me tell you what Isaiah said about you. Let me tell you what David wrote about you. Verse 9, What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And they are silent. They don't say to Him, oh, that's not true. They know it's true. They know that they are worse than the dirty, rotten sinners because they should have known better. They should have known not to watch those things or do those things They should have known that we need to be engaging God in a different way than those that he has not called. They were worse. But they don't say a word to Paul. They pull the old Abraham card, which they always do. When he backs them into a corner, then they say, well, what about Abraham? Ain't no one going to talk bad about Abraham. As there was ever a righteous man who was called the friend of God, it was Abraham. And so Paul addresses that. I love how he does that. He says, oh, verse 1, chapter 4. Oh, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Right? He was a good man. If anyone could boast about works and do it, it was Abraham. But what does Paul say? But not before God. Not in the light of the righteous judgment of God, not in the full-orbed presence of the law of God, which was a revelation of His character, which Christ came to reveal in light of that, you cannot boast. You have to understand what you are. And that's what Paul is trying to bring us before we can grasp the truth of the gospel, before I ever really, truly desire to cry out for His righteousness, that it will cover me. I've got to know the truth about myself. And I don't know that I've known the truth. I know the truth about myself. I know that. When my heart begins to weep, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. When I begin to be broken on the inside and have a weeping for my sin, then I know I've got it. Then I'll cry out for that righteousness. Those are the steps that we're taking. We're going to take these steps so that you can have a true weeping of the soul. And today is the first or the second step in that process. Abraham was a man, but not before God that could boast. I heard a story one time. Someone told me of this young Amish man that was raised kind of like some Adventist kids are raised. No television, no worldly contact, raised in a home school. I mean, just perfect environment. The young Amish guy is wants to uh, get out and go to college. And he's going to some Amish school where there are other Amish kids and they're really nice kids. And he gets there with his group of roommates and he decides that, that they're going to watch a movie, a Western. He had never seen television before. And he's sitting there watching it. And within a minute, you know what happens in Westerns, 1950 Westerns. Though Someone pulls a gun, a little cloud of smoke, and then the guy falls over. And as the guy falls over, he watches it. And he gets up and he runs out in the hallway and he throws up. And he's just weeping horribly. And they can't understand. What's wrong with you? It so affected him. Sin so affected him to see it; he just could. It just made him sick. And yet, I can watch the most vilest, bloodiest, killing, murder, violence, rape, hatred. I can watch it on TV and sitting there, eat my popcorn. Oh, this is fun. Oh, this is fake. It don't affect me no more. Why? Why doesn't it make me sick? We're told that Christ, when he saw a sinful situation, his soul recoiled from it. It was pain to his soul to encounter sin. And yet, Curtis Damon's need, I can watch it with glee. Oh, it's, oh, this is the history channel. Oh, it's, it's fun. Oh, it's exciting. It's because my nature is fallen and so decrepit that I've even forgotten how to blush. It's the truth. That's why Romans 3, verse 23 says, For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's another little text right there. Well, the glory of God is His character, right? His character was revealed in Christ. I fall short of that character. That's what it's trying. That character is what I'm to measure myself with. And when I look at that character, man, it's another whole universe. I could look at my character compared to your character, and we might could banter back and forth. But when I look up at that character, It's, we got an ant problem, I like to say. I got a friend, he says it this way. I say ants. You know, you've been walking around and kicked over an ant hill. And you see all the ants? Have you ever looked at the ants and went, man, that's a pretty ant. That's an ugly ant. That's a fat ant. That's a skinny ant. Well, that ant's really smart. We don't do that because they're just ants. My friend calls it the lizard kingdom. We're, we're all a bunch of lizards with eyes looking at each other and we're all a bunch of ugly, gross lizards. The problem is that we keep looking at each other when we need to take our eyes off of one another and look at the real standard. And then all of a sudden you quit looking at one another. You quit looking at the differences between you because there's differences between us. You may be way up here, I'm right here, I may be above this person, and it's like this. And yeah, there's moral, and we've grown, and we've been sanctified more than someone else, and someone else sanctified more than me. But the truth is, when I really look at the real measurement, Paul is trying to say, we are all guilty before God under sin, and none of us are righteous. That's the standard. I am not righteous. And when I start really becoming introspective about what I am and the truth about myself, that's what causes me to start crying out for righteousness if you're not crying out for righteousness in your life in some meaningful way, every now and then at least, it's because you're not taking inventory, true inventory of what you are. We're constantly being told how sanctified and how holy and how righteous and how good we are. And because of that, not that we won't become those things, but because we're constantly being told that we're forgetting the truth about what I am. And that is causing me to not seek out that righteousness. And so Paul is trying to ground us. Steps to Christ is trying to ground me in that truth so that once again the people of God will cry out. One ray of the glory of God, one gleam of the purity of Christ, penetrating the soul makes every spot of defilement painfully distinct and lays bare the deformity and defects of the human character. Now, that is what happens as I look at that righteousness. It's not just a the theology, right? I can't just say, oh, I'm looking at that righteousness. It's, it's been given to me. No, as I look at Christ, I'm looking at righteousness. When I look at desire of ages, when I look at the Gospels, when I see how he lived his life, when I see how he prayed, how he forgave, how he cared, how he sacrificed, that is righteousness. And as I look at it, I say, I'm not like that. I am not righteous. That's why I need his righteousness. But we'll talk about later. The paradox is I'll start becoming righteous. But the way to get there is this. This is the way to get there. I love what Martin Luther said. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. (laughs) Amen. He understood. You know, when I was at the tender age of 18. I remember I got married and ran off to Biloxi, Mississippi. Only place in the... Lower Southern states had uh, 32 states that you could get married through a loophole. I grabbed my high school girlfriend, we ran off, we went to Mississippi, we got married, and I'm sitting there in front of the justice of the peace, and, and and she said, "Curtis Damon Snead, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to love and to cherish?" And I was like, "Oh yes." And then you know she looked at me and and. The judge said, do you, sister so-and-so, take Curtis Damus' need to be your lawfully wedded husband to love and cherish?" If someone could have just froze that scene. And then took me over and showed me the future. And showed me what I was going to do to that young woman in just nine months while she was pregnant. If they could have just stopped that camera scene right there. And showed what I was going to be doing in a Walmart parking lot with a co-worker. Or showed 10 years later the screaming and the yelling and the hollering and the fighting. If they could have showed me what I would have done to that relationship at that moment, I would have been sick and threw up and said, no, no. But what happened was I was baptized at 18 years old. I passed the test, right? I, I did the 27 fundamental beliefs. I passed the Amazing Facts Bible studies. I was baptized because I believed Jesus was my Savior. And no one told me that I was a wreck. No one told me, young man, you need to watch out for your sinful nature because you are capable of anything. I had no clue of that. I thought, hey, I keep the Sabbath, I'm paying my tithe, I know who the Pope is, I know what the beast is. I got it all down, I got it all right. But because I didn't understand Steps to Christ, chapter 2, because I didn't understand the fallen human nature, I destroyed my life. I shipwrecked it. I spent all of my 30s paying for the mistakes of my 20s. You must understand the sinner's need. If you can get there, man, you can save yourself a lot of misery. If I would have known that and cried out for that righteousness to cover me, that righteousness also would have affected me and changed me. But I didn't know it. The truth is, Ciceri had it right. The human family are natural born God killers. That's what we are. We are part of that race of beings that could do that. That is the truth. And because of that, I've learned one thing in 50 years, and it's this. There's no sin I'm not capable of. There's no deception I I cannot fall prey to. I don't trust myself as far as I can throw myself. I don't trust my thoughts or my heart. I trust God and His Word and His Holy Spirit, and I cry out for that righteousness from time to time. God, fill me with it again. Cover me. I need it. I'm weak. I'm broken. This is the gospel. Now, we got to take our next step quickly. I wish I could continue on with this. But when we understand that we are broken and foul and our natures are fallen, when we got that down, well, what's the next step? If you're following along in steps to Christ, you are probably going to make the same mistake I did. If you're going along, chapter 1, the love of God, Calvary, the judgment, chapter 2, the sinner's need, chapter 3, repentance. When I was putting this wheel of faith together in the beginning, I was like, okay, I got it. I understand. And I went straight to chapter 3. I actually had my first lecture was on repentance, being sorry for sin. Right? Repentance. I didn't even read the chapter. I said, oh, I know what repentance is. I got to quit sinning. And so I started doing this lecture and uh, I went straight to, to this title. And one time someone had sent me these two young ladies, these two millennials... To come study the will of faith because I was just putting it together, getting the Bible studies together. People was excited about it on campus. And we, we went through the love of God, the Calvary, the atonement, the sinner's need. And they was like, yes, we understand that they were moved. And I said, like, okay, the next chapter next week, repentance, turning from sin. I had some little thing wrote up about how you got to stop sinning. And I remember they came into my office and I asked these two young ladies, I said, okay, so what do you think about repentance? And they just looked at me. And they said, well, it meant that you got to feel sorry for sin. I said, well, are you sorry for sin? Or are you it was all kind of cocky and a little arrogant? And they just looked at me. I never forget this look. They wrinkled their nose and went, No, we're not. We don't feel sorry. I said, Well, you know you got sin in your life, right? Well, probably, yeah, but we don't feel sorry for it. Like the chapter said. The chapter said there's got to be a brokenness, a contrition. They were the first persons ever in my life. I've been a Bible worker long before I was a pastor. And I have given thousands of Bible studies. And I've never had anyone tell me they're not sorry for sin. And it threw me. I was flabbergasted. I was like, what do you mean you're not, you don't feel sorry for sin? They said, no, we don't feel sorry. But they were being honest. The chapter is powerful because it has everything to do with this step. And I was like, well you got to be sorry anyway. <laughs> That's what I told them. I said, you got to be sorry anyway. And I didn't realize what I was leading them into, which is going to be tomorrow morning's topic. I was leading them into a fake repentance, a fake sorrow. Well, you got to be sorry. Well, how do you feel sorry if you don't? Well, you just got to be. And I learned this as a kid, and you think about it, it's true. I had a little brother... And he was a year younger than me. Then we had a little brother that came along. I was like 10 and he was two. And we became his indentured servants. Man, my mother was always making us take Travis along with us. You take Travis with you. So she fooled around and thought she was going to help us out and bought him one of those cozy coupes, those big plastic cars. And so we were the motors for it. We had to push him all around the yard, everywhere we went, push Travis. So we got tired of that one day. We decided to give him a real ride. We got our bicycles and tied some ropes to him. And tied to the handle. I know all the mothers always do this. They're like. Oh, and we tied to the handles of this car. And we started on the road. Pedaling those bikes. And we was dragging him behind. And he was having such a fine time. And we got bored. And we said. Okay Travis. Pick your feet up. We're going to pick it up. And we started. You know. Standing on those bicycles. And they're going back and forth. And he's holding on. And he starts to squall. Crying out. And about the time we passed. In front of my mother's house. She hears him crying and she runs out in that front yard and we hit a chug hole right in the driveway and that little car flips. It hits and he slides out on the ground and, and he's scraped up and he's crying and, and Mama runs out there and picks him up and, and she looks at us and she says, you say you're sorry to your little brother. And he looks at us and we look down at him and he's just, he's just cheesing and smiling. And I said... Damon, say you're sorry. Sorry, Travis. Toby, say you're sorry. Sorry, Travis. And all through school, we learn. And all through childhood, we learn to say we're sorry when we're not. And when we come into Christianity and we hear that you've got to be sorry for your sin, we automatically say it and we don't feel it. We don't mean it. It's a huge problem. We're going to look at tomorrow How important repentance is to everything. In fact, if you're looking at the time of trouble, how does God's people go through the great time of trouble? What prepares them? She says it's repentance and repentance alone. God drives his people into a true sorrow for sin at the end of time. And that's what prepares them to receive the latter rain and the seal of God. It's what protects them. It's why Christ can step out from the most holy place and pronounce them free and they're not going to sin no more because they have repented to the very dregs. Everything depends upon repentance. It's the condition to justification. Everything depends on that. And it is a huge problem if we don't know how to repent. If repentance means a true sorrow for sin, then it's a fair question, when's the last time you have felt a weeping over sin? And if you haven't, that's a problem. It was for me. When's the last time I had a brokenness in my heart over sin where I wept over it, where I felt bad for it? And that was the problem the young ladies were facing. They're like, well, what do you do? I had no clue what to do with them. I quickly had prayer. Well, we'll talk about it next week. Next week, they're coming into my office and I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm looking down at Steps to Christ And I'm thinking, what am I missing? What am I missing? Is she really that vague? And then right there is the golden statement. Right there in chapter 3 in repentance. Before she gets to repentance, she tells you this is the step after the sinner's need. And when I read it, I was like, hallelujah, that's it. This is how I have real repentance, by the way. This is where real repentance will come from. A real brokenness for sin comes at this step. But when you hear this step, you might tongue-in-cheek me like, oh, okay. No, then we're going to look at what that step really means. Okay, here it is. She says this in Steps to Christ, page 26. This precedes repentance. Just here is a point on which many err. Hence they fail of receiving the help that Christ desires to give them. They think that they cannot come to Christ unless they first Repent. And that repentance prepares for the forgiveness of their sins. It is true that repentance does precede the forgiveness of sins. For it is only the broken and contrite heart that will feel the need of a Savior. But must the sinner wait till he is repentant before he can come to Jesus? Is repentance to be made an obstacle between the sinner and the Savior? I love this quote here. The Bible does not teach that the sinner must repent before he can heed the invitation of Christ. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is the virtue that goes forth from Christ that leads to genuine repentance. The true secret for sorrow, for sin. The virtue that comes, the power that comes from Christ that helps me to truly become repentant over my sin. Now that's what I needed to hear at 18 when I was being baptized. I needed Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I it the 2,300 years, but I really need it for someone to say, look, you're a mess and you're never going to see it until you have real sorrow for sin and you'll never have that until you come to Christ. Now we got to look at, well, what does that mean? Okay, okay, that means, okay, Jesus, you're my Savior. Oh, so much more. Matthew 11 is like the the best place. It is the, again, it's the Magna Carta of what it means to come to Christ. Matthew the 11th chapter. Now, in Matthew 11, this is the story where the disciples of John the Baptist are coming to Jesus and asking, him, are you really the Messiah? You know, that part. Well, when they depart and they leave, Jesus starts talking about the work of John. In Matthew 11, verse 4 through 12, he says this about John. He says, there was nobody like John. There was no prophet ever like this man that has ever existed In fact, in verse 13, he says, there has always been the prophets. What did John do? Remember? His main thing. He called people to Christ. Come, come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and repent. That was his main and only message. Come. And in verse 13, he says, man, in fact, that's what the prophets have always been doing. They have been saying, come, come to God, come into his presence, come into his courtyard. And then he turns to his own mission in verse 16 and 19. He says, God has even sent me. In verse 16 and 19 he says, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. John, the greatest prophet, was sent and said, come, and you did not come. All the prophets were sent to say, come, and you did not come. And I've come, and you have not come. And what shall I liken to this generation? In fact, he's quoting Ezekiel. He's quoting Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 32. Let's read it. It's pretty neat. And it's interesting where this came from. Ezekiel 33, verse 32, it's, the, it's a verbatim quote. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. Now, it's interesting that at the time of Ezekiel, there was a Greek, uh, a Greek set of stories called Aesop f- Fables. And one of them was called The Fisherman and the Flute. And in The Fisherman and the Flute, there is a fisherman that doesn't like to fish. So he desires a way to do it different. And he takes his flute and he comes up to the water's edge and he plays a beautiful song on his flute. We're not sure if Ezekiel borrowed it from him or he borrowed it from Ezekiel. But he's playing on his flute and the fish won't come to his music. So he goes and he gets a net. He throws it out. He drags the fish up on shore and he looks at him. and He says, now you'll dance. You'll come to me of your own accord or you will come to me by force. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the next few verses. He says he begins to upbraid the cities. If the work's done in you... Would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. In other words, the moral of the story in Ezekiel, the moral of the story in Jesus is you'll dance now or you'll dance later. You can come to me of your own accord now and and I will help you and I will save you or you will come on that final day in the judgment when all men are brought before me. And every man will have to give an account to the way that he lived. And so what does Jesus do in Matthew 11, verse 28? He does what he has always done through the prophets, through John, through his own ministry. In verse 28, one more time, he cries out and he says the only thing that needs to be said, Come unto me. Come. You have a need. You know what you are. You know the truth. You know the judgment. You come. I know that you're not repentant, that you're not sorry for your sin. You cannot feel sorry for your sin in your own strength. You must come to me before you can feel a true sorrow for sin. And I will give you rest. In context of the chapter, I will give you rest. I will teach you to truly be repentant. I will come into your life and bring you a true sorrow for sin. I will come into your life that will lead to a real justification, which will lead to a true and deep and powerful sanctification, which will be seen in all the world as works. I'm telling you what the generation of Seventh-day Adventists need today. More than they need anything else. What our young people need to hear at this session more than anything else is how to become repentant over sin And this is the step that leads to it. Well, what does it mean to come to Christ? The next few verses tells us in verse 29 and 30. Now, here we go. We're going to get particular. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me means to take upon myself his yoke. Well, in the Old Testament, a yoke was a wooden instrument that bound two animals together. And in this context, also, a yoke was a set of teachings that a rabbi had. It was called his yoke, his teachings. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to come to me, if you want to have a real sorrow for sin, you've got to first come to me. But coming to me means taking my yoke, taking my teachings. You're going to agree to sign up on the program. And it doesn't mean anything else. You cannot be a follower of Christ. You cannot come to him and be saved and then try to w- walk with someone else's yoke. You can't walk with the yoke of the world. To be a disciple of Christ means to follow in His footsteps, to live as He lived. And you cannot do that of your own accord. You cannot live like Christ in the New Testament until you've come to Him. But coming to Him means you want to live like Him. And then He'll bring the power of true repentance in your life that will convict you of sins and show you where you need to change and things you need to add to your life. But coming to Him, well, I guess I could explain it. Best this way. For me, what it meant. I had this this old horse. <clears throat> and this old horse's name was Dolly. And Dolly was a, a horse that I, I bought for $500. Never buy a $500 horse. <laughs> the guy came and dropped her off at my house he, and quickly took the money, left me this bit and bridle, and a 15 foot long lead rope. I didn't understand why the lead rope was so long until he left. <laughs> I learned later, oh, when I went to put this bitten bridle on her, and the moment I picked it out and shook it like that, she took off running. The lead rope was so that you could trick her and step on it and then pull her to the, put the bitten bridle in. A bit and bridle it was a very difficult thing for this horse. She hated it. I'd get it up to her mouth, and I was trying to get all of this over the top of her withers and get the curb chain on, and she would just grit her teeth. She <laughs> her head. Finally, I called her friend. I said, man, what do I do? He says, oh, grab her behind her. Her jaw's with right there. And squeeze, and she'll open up. So I'd squeeze, and she'd open it up, and she'd fight me, and this, this is like an ordeal. I was so mad at this horse. I was so frustrated. I didn't want to ride her. Every time I got on this horse, it was a, battle to put this bitten bridle in well one day i decided that i got to do something different one day i decided that you know i got to try something else so i decided to hide it behind my back i went and got some sweet feed took that sweet feed and i held it up out like this and i said come on girl come on dolly and she'd put that head down and she'd smell and she'd clop up to me and she had those velvety horse lips. I could can feel them. And she'd start eating. And I'd pull this out. i say, it's okay, girl. Come on. Come on. It's okay. And she looked at me. i never forget the first day it happened. She just opened her mouth up. She put that bit in. And I got the bridle on. Got on her. rode her like magic. Do you know what she did? What this bit and bridle represented? As she came to me, this represented control. She gave me control. Coming to Christ is giving Him control. Absolute control. So that He can show up and show you what repentance has got to look like. It must look like this. So that you'll have a real desire for righteousness so that you will cry out for it, so that you will be filled with the Spirit. But it starts here. You have a need. If you know that you have a sinner's need, if you know what I've said is true, then coming to Christ is literally nothing more than coming under His yoke of discipleship and giving Him control in all areas of your life. You can't ever tell a rabbi, uh, well, I'm really going to eat the way... I see what you're eating, but no, nah, it's not for me. I at least something else. Oh, I see the way you're dressing, but boy, I just uh, this is these boots look good. Oh no no, I see what you're reading, but I, I I got some TV to watch. Oh, I I know where you're going, but I got other stuff to take care of right now. You can never do that to a rabbi. He'll say, you know what, go back, practice the family trade, go on. You're not ready for me. When you come to Christ, you've got to know what it means. It's best to say, well, I'm not going to come to him and be out in the world and come later than to think that you're coming to him and become lukewarm. To come to him means to accept what he says for your life, who to marry, where to go to school, what kind of job, missions or not, or fields or, or careers or colleges, what to eat, what to wear, how to walk, how to look, how to talk. It's all his dictation. That's what it means to come to him. And if you'll do that, though, man, the promise is a powerful, real repentance for sin will come into the life. And everything else that we're going to be talking about on this wheel, it really begins here. This is actually your step. We've talked about what he has done. You know, when the first time I came to Christ, this is sad. I was 28, baptized at 18. Ten years, life of miserable wreck. Miserable wreck. One Sabbath morning, I walked out on my back porch. And I remember looking at the field that I just finished putting the fence up and putting this gate in. And I, I looked at it and I said, you know, I want to build another. I wanted to have another set of horses and have a farrier service. And and I started looking at this and I said, well, I need to clear these out and, and I need to do this. And I remember having this feeling of, of exhaustion came over. I've been working 10 years on this little piece of property. And, and I remember saying, God, why isn't it enough? Why am I excited about Sabbath? Why is my Sabbath school lesson not done? Why haven't I prayed? You know, I started thinking about all these big picture things. And I didn't think nothing about it. I went on, went to church as usual, got there about 1030, sat down for the service. And it was Vic preaching. Now, he's dead and gone from this world. We had a little bitty church, district pastor. He came there once a month. The rest of the three weeks, old rusty, crusty elders. And they'd get up there and they would drone on forever. And Vic was the worst. And I hated his sermons. And so he he was preaching this particular Sabbath. And I was like, oh, here we go. 30 minutes in, he's not even made a point yet. (laughs) But then he began to talk about these donkeys. I'll never forget this. He began to talk about these donkeys. And that when they get fearful and they're scared and they're, you know, different problems, they'll get in a circle and start kicking one another. And he started saying that, that when we are afraid, or when we're asking questions, or when we're not settled, we're like that. We're kicking. We're kicking ourselves. And then he made this thing. He says, "You need to come to Christ." And he gave a sermon very similar to this about what it means to come. And I'd never heard anyone in ten years say, "Come to Christ." That's what the Baptists do, right? The Baptists give the altar calls to come to Christ. We know who Jesus is. We got faith. We believe. We got. The, we got all this other prophecy and stuff never heard you need to come and come means to become a follower and you're not a follower you're a believer in in a lot of good things you got a lot of doctrinal understandings man i could at that age i could recite the three angels message word by word from verse 6 through verse 14 i could proof text anybody under the table on the sabbath the state of the dead the law I knew all about 1844. I could tell you about Babylon, me to Greece and Rome and the toes and the statues, but I had never come to Christ. That's why my life was a shipwreck, because I had no sorrow for sin. And I never forget when he gave the call. He gave it, his wife was in cahoots. She went over to the piano, began to play, just as I am. And this time I was terrified. I was terrified at the message. I was afraid she was going to quit playing and I felt like something magical was happening. Something was passing. Something was going on. I felt a stir in my, in my heart. And all of a sudden, like in, in the book of Genesis, where the angels just grab Lot's family, I just stood up. Whoop. I didn't know what... I, I just stood up. I still to this day, think I just stood up and looked around. And my wife looked at me in the church, knowing it, you know... No one ever responds to that stuff. I stood up and then what's worse, I stood up and I, I started walking down the center aisle and I began to weep. Oh, man. I remember the head elder, he stood up and he put his arm around me and they just stood there with me. And I came to Christ for the first time. And all those years of theology could not have matched that one moment. Now what would follow next is very important. I want to read this quote to you first. Steps to Christ, page 26. We can no more repent without the Spirit of Christ to awaken the conscience than we can be pardoned without Christ. Christ is the source of every right impulse. He is the only one that can implant in the heart enmity against sin. Every desire for truth and purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is an evidence that His Spirit is moving upon the hearts. You could not, I could not repent. I had no chance of it. I had nothing but a damnation mindset. Because I didn't know how to repent. I didn't know how to be sorry for sin. But when I came to Christ... I thought I was there. I was like, wow, man, this is what the Baptists are talking about. He's my, I mean, come to Christ. I felt my tears. There was something going on. And then that night, that Saturday night was the worst fight me and my first class ever got into. It was horrible. It became physical. One of the first times it ever turned physical. Grabbing, slapping, squeezing. And she yelled at me, get out. I'm done with you. I want a Divorce. I packed my stuff up. I was living in Louisiana. I went four hours back west towards Houston. Moved in with my mother. And that night I was thinking, God, I I just come to you. And that night, like a parade before my mind, sin began. God began to show me my sin. Way back when I was 18, 20. The yelling, the fighting, the inconsiderate nature. The self I mean, sin, I couldn't bear it. I could not take it. I just couldn't quit. Night after night, I was going through this until finally one night, I cried out, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And later when I come to understand what righteousness was, now I'm crying for your righteousness. I see my filthy condition. Real repentance, I'm telling you, only came for me. When I came to him and I took this third step, because the next step ain't got nothing to do with you. If you take this step, the next step, I'm telling you, is automatic. This step is everything. Everything before this is what he has done for you. It's the truth about what you are. Step number two. Step number four is what he's going to do. You've got to take step number three. You've got to come to him and now you know what coming to Christ means. It means I'm giving you control. I'm going to let you tell me the truth about what you see, not what I see, not what the church sees, not what my wife sees. And she can see a lot. It's what you see. Now you're going to have real repentance. Now we're going to get somewhere. Oh, I'm telling you, it's beautiful. If you don't, you'll continue to have a fake sorrow, a worldly sorrow. The kind of sorrow that, that, you know, you feel bad about things. I feel bad to see her over there weeping. I I felt bad because I wasn't convict, you know, more committed to church. I I didn't always pay a faithful tithe. I I cheated on the Sabbath hours. (laughs) I always felt bad about those things. Well, who did their, who memorized their memory verse for the week? I never, you know, I should have. I didn't even look. You know, I always felt sorry, but not sorry enough to quit. Listen to this, Steps to Christ. Page 25, multitude sorrow that they have sinned and even make an outward reformation because they fear that their wrongdoing will bring suffering upon themselves. But this is not true repentance in the biblical sense. They lament the suffering rather than the sin. Such was the grief of Esau. You want to know why, GYC? Do you want to know why year after year for 17 years we keep talking about going out and doing missions and we haven't done them yet? Why, year after year, it's the same thing? Pray, 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 get up, go, go, go. Pray, 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 go, go, go. And no one prays and no one goes. This is why we're not repentant of it. We don't feel no conviction of it. And until you do, you'll never do. Or consistently do. And the way to do is to come to Him and know what it means. And let Him show up and show you why you don't have a desire to go to the world. And then when you feel that and you repent of that and you cry out for His covering from... Now the Holy Spirit we're going to look at tomorrow can show up and start doing some unbelievable thing. That's what the church needs. That's why the message of justification by faith is always talked about. Sanctification is not left out. But anytime there's a movement... The message that goes into the world like fire in the stubble? Justification by faith. That's the steps that we're talking about. So it's all included in this topic. What what leads the remnant into being the 144,000? Justification by faith. These steps that we're talking about. What prepares them for the time of trouble? What causes the great advent shaking? It's all justification by faith, which always leads to sanctification. But these are the steps that lead to that powerful feeling we're waiting for. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says, chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. We're, we're going to bring it on home here in a second. About fake sorrow and true sorrow. Which one do you want? Listen to what Paul says. Beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. In other words, a sorrow that's worth something. A sorrow that you don't have to be sorry that you really weren't sorry about. Real repentance creates real sorrow, he's saying. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort... What carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Do you see the difference? A worldly sorrow will make you feel bad, but it will destroy your life. I have a shipwrecked life, estranged from my children. Terrible witness of my life. Why? Because I had a worldly sorrow that could not change me. But when I began with a godly sorrow, what zeal, what vehemence, what desire, what clearing of myself, what change came about in my life when I truly began to repent. You got to understand that is the secret for success at GYC. So long before Peter ever says in Acts chapter 2, when the gospel is laid out in, those, in that little, those little verses, 36, 37, 38, so beautifully. We're going to start on that tomorrow. But long before he ever starts with the word repent, he's quoting in Acts 2 verse 21 a quote. In Acts chapter 2 verse 21, Peter reminds them of what they must do at this moment in their life. Because he's been presenting the gospel. He's presenting the cross. He's presenting their atonement. He's telling their sinners need what you did to the King of glory. You crucified him. You, you, you did it. And then the next words he says in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's reminding them, I'm giving you a call to come. You come. And if you come, you will be saved. Because if you come, we'll take the next step in the morning. It will happen to you. I promise. It's one of those prayers. If you want to know there's a God. He's never failed to answer. So, our job, I'm telling you, we got a little time left. Our job, just as a side of evangelism, we talked, I heard people talking about last night what do we do for our children? How do we reach our neighbors? Our job, we think, is to tell our family about the Sabbath. There's a time where they'll need to know that. Your kids are out of church, your brothers and sisters are out of church. Our job is to get him to come to Christ. That's where we start. i got kids. They're all out of the church. Every one of them. And I used to hammer on them on Facebook. They're there on Sabbath. Bubba's at the motocross. There is a Sabbath. My daughter's out at the fair. There it is Sabbath. Why aren't you going to church? You need to go to church. You need to go to church. Oh, you got to go to church. I know, Dad. I know, Dad. No, now it's you need to come to Christ. And I don't quite say it like that, but that's what I'm getting at. I'm trying to get them to him because if they can come to Christ, then he'll bring real sorrow for sin. And I don't got to say a word. Our churches need it. Our kids and our family, you need it. I need it. You tell them what it means, though. And you truth, Look, The man said last night, it's true. You come as you are. Don't worry about the Sabbath. Don't worry about your hair. Don't worry about what you're eating. Don't worry about the way you're. Don't don't just come. Will you just come? Well, what does it mean to come, Dad? It means you want to follow him. You want to live like him. You want to. He'll treat. He'll help you. He'll, do you want to do that? No. Okay. Leave him alone. If you don't want to do that, it's best to walk out of here from right now and say, you know, I'm not ready to come to Christ. But if you are ready to come, know what it means, and be ready for the next step because it's a ride. And we must come to Him continually. It's not, you know, I use this as a teaching tool. It's not just a we come every day. Every morning I wake up, I'm coming back to His presence and say, Lord, I, I'm coming again. I know what it means. And, well, the next step usually always follows. When I was a kid, I remember watching those great Billy Graham Crusades. And before I was biased against some of our religious friends, I remember being so impressed. It touched me so much. I was just a young man. And you remember how Billy Graham used to end every sermon. He used to look up into the stands. And there'd be thousands, thousands of people in those stadiums. And what would he say? You come. You come. You come to Christ right now. And I remember watching one of those sessions where they just began to... Come down out of the stands. The bikers, the rednecks, the hippies, the cowboys, the yuppies, the black, the white, the yellow, the brown. They were all down from end zone to end zone, packed in there. Man, people arm in arm, just tears pouring down their face because they had finally, for the first time in their life, come to Christ. There's a reason why the book of Revelation, in its last chapter, in verse 17, one of its few final moments, some of the last inkling words that God says to humanity before he closes the record. In verse 17, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, you come. All that I'm going to ask you as we close our time together is that you consider what that means. In Revelation 18, 4, what is the message that we are to give to the world? Come. Come out of her, my people. But we've got to tell them where to go to. Come to Christ. Let's have closing prayer and just a, a few quiet moments together. I'm going to give you all another eight minutes. And let's have prayer together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we see this powerful step of coming to you. It has some meaning. Yeah, it's an intellectual choice. It's a decision. But we know what it means now to put ourselves under your discipleship, to put the bit and bridle on, to give you control so that you can show up and bring a real true sorrow for sin that will free us and change us and transform us and empower. We've got to take this step. And there are some here, Lord, I know that have not taken that step. Maybe out of ignorance, maybe out of rebellion, who knows? But right now their heads are bowed and all you are looking for is a simple yes. Yes. As a minister of the everlasting gospel. I have called them. In a great line of men and women down through the history. Lord you have called them. Through my weak human voice. And I pray. That if any in this moment. And their hearts say yes. I'm coming to you. I pray. That you would show up. In their lives. And we'll take that next step. And things will never be the same again for them. May you bless them, Lord, to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll have a few extra minutes again, about five minutes. If you'd like to stay by and just reflect. Um, Be here tomorrow. We're going to see if you can take next step, figure out what it is. And uh, I'll give you a little hint. It's still in chapter 3, and it's not repentance. (laughs) And uh, I will see you all tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time. God bless. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.